Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? No, I know, I know it's not Thursday, it's Sunday. Sorry? Craig, why didn't we have our podcast on Thursday? Well, I I shall tell you for why. And this is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I messed up. I don't know, I'm half, I'm, half the week I'm homeschooling, okay? So, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I am... You know, quite literally in the thick of it, as I know you are, right? So I recorded the intro and the outro, and I sent over the files to Griff. Perfect. Great. We're all done. That's great for Thursday. There we are, Robert Webb's episode. Bang on. I sent over two different files to him, and I thought, I said, no problem. I'll re-record, as you do, as we can. What couldn't I find? My HD card that goes into my recorder, come find it. Could I get an HD card? No. Did I want to record it on my iPhone in the voice notes? Well, yeah, look, I could have done that, couldn't I? But it wouldn't have been lovely and nice and sonically pleasing to your ear. Do you see what I did there? I was trying to make out that this is a much nicer uh, version and quality of the intro. So that's why, but look... Whatever you're doing this Sunday morning, maybe you're sat down, you've cooked a lovely breakfast for people, or maybe you're by yourself during lockdown and you've made yourself a lovely special breakfast. Well, kick back, have this breakfast, and listen to this episode with Robert Webb. More of that in one second. Now, after, and I repeat, after you have listened to this, I want you to do me a favour, or or actually, do yourself a favour. I want you to go to YouTube, wherever you are, and I want you to go to the Barbican Theatre at YouTube. And on their YouTube channel, you are going to watch a play. Now, I suggest this watching... I I suggest this? I suggest you watch this on a laptop or... Well, basically... What you have to do is you have to wear headphones. It's very, very important. And it's a play called The Encounter. And it's from Complicite. And it's starring Simon McBurney, who is going to be my very, very special guest next week. Because what I'm going to do next week, uh, I'm going to give you two episodes. The first one being with Simon McBurney. Now, The Encounter is only on the Barbican YouTube channel from the 15th, and I think, to the 21st. It's a very limited time. And it's one of the most astonishing, groundbreaking, uh, all-consuming pieces of theatre that I've ever witnessed. And I'm not overstating that, but you have to wear headphones. Trust me, you'll understand. Now, if you've seen any of Complicity's work in the past, you will understand what I'm talking about. You don't know what you're letting yourself in for. So please do that before Simon McBurney's episode, because we are going to talk about the encounter. And I don't want you to listen if you haven't seen the play. It's uh, straight through. I think it's like uh, maybe an hour and 10, hour and 20 I'm not going to tell you anything about it. All I can say is that it is one man with quite a lot of microphones on stage and it's all about sound and storytelling. Okay, that's it. I'm going to... Only I'm saying that because I went to it knowing nothing at all and it blew my mind. Okay? No, I'm not overstating it. Trust me. Okay. So, on to this week's episode. It is episode 126, I think. I don't know, is my brain still at the school table? I'm still talking about maths, which I know nothing about. Um, But I had a lovely conversation with Robert Webb. And of course, you'll know Robert Webb if you've seen Peep Show. He's got a new book out. It's called Come Again. We talk briefly about it. Of course we do. 
But uh, that is not what the conversation arc is about. The conversation arc is obviously about the human being that is Mr. Robert Webb. So, here we go. This is episode 126 of the Two Shot Podcast with Robert Webb. Enjoy, and I'll see you at the end. It's really strange for me doing these podcasts. I'm just getting my head around it because normally I get to meet people and they sit down in front of me. We have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and I can see their reaction and their physicality Mm. and I can look in their eyes. So to do this remotely, I'm just getting my head around it because it seems quite clinical. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's really weird. I've been doing um, the odd sort of online uh, book event where, I mean, which is the, you know, an attempt to kind of simulate the, where you walk into a room, a large room full of people um, and somebody pleasant asks you questions about the book and then you answer them and you do a reading and, and that kind of thing. And, um, but doing those, but with no with an audience, but where you can't see them or hear them or smell them. And it's just really weird, especially if, you know, you're interested in making them laugh and you can't, you can't see or hear the audience. It's absolutely bizarre. And you also don't know how many people are listening. Yeah, of course. You know, it could be five, it could be 50. We don't know. And so it's just really weird. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm trying to get used to that as, as well. But you, you've got a very nice voice, Craig. I'm, I'm going to trust in that for, for the time being. Well, so have you. So that's all right. Isn't it? We're, <laughs> we're off to a good start. I was talking to somebody yesterday, actually, about um, all the stand-ups, you know, because obviously their yeah. their livelihood has been ripped from them. Absolutely. As, as loads of people's has. And they're, uh, you know, they're performing stand-up in their living rooms or their kitchens, but they don't get the the to and fro with the audience they don't get the the laughter or the spurring on and i I think that must be so so difficult well it must be like running on one engine instead of four it's absolutely peculiar um yeah no i'm i'm glad that that's uh, that's not the bit of comedy that i I showed any promise for whatsoever (laughs) so normally so what i'm trying to do is reformat it a little bit so i'm starting i'm going to start i usually start things off with this or i end it with this but with this i'm going to start it off so it's just a bit of a lightning round Robert, so we'll just do a bit of a an either or. Um, starter or dessert? Ooh, um, these days, starter. Vinyl or download? Uh, ooh, uh, download. Yes or no? Yes. Saturday night or Sunday morning? Saturday night. Town or country? Town. Train or plane? Train. Good, good answer. Uh, Lennon or McCartney? Uh, McCartney, probably not a popular answer, but there we are. Beatles or Stones? Beatles. North or South? North. Again, good answer. <laughs> um, home or away? Home. Answer the phone or leave to voicemail? Leave to voicemail. Long bath or a quick shower? Long bath. Tea or coffee? Tea. Passenger or driver? Oh, it depends, doesn't it? I'm going to have to say driver. Winter or summer? Summer. Weekday or weekend? Mm, Weekday. Even with homeschooling, Robert Webb? Mm, Not really. (laughs) (laughs) I'm starting to appreciate weekends more than ever. Uh, I think I should give you the typical answer rather than the answer that's... No, actually, I'll give you the answer that's honest right now. Uh, Weekend. Uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Christmas Eve. To give or to receive? To give, actually. I think I, I was about to say honestly to receive, but I think I think to give, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Hardback or e-book? Hardback. And your final one, fingers on buzzers, The Young Ones or Blackadder? The Young Ones. <gasps> oh, yes. choice. Oh, yes. And... Um, you know, in these days, especially, well, not these days, where we are in the UK, we automatically put people into brackets. Mm. And, and certainly when we, we talk about class. Mm. And for those that, that wouldn't know, they would look at you and look at your work and they would automatically make an assumption yeah. of, of where you're from. And, and 
it'd be the wrong one, wouldn't it? It would, but I've got nothing to grumble about because I, you know, that was that's kind of what I wanted when I was sort of fourteen, fifteen. I ch- I'm from Lincolnshire, which is uh, is not the proper north. People from the proper north, uh, as I detect you're from, uh, laugh at the idea that, the, that Lincolnshire is the north. It's sort of the, the East Midlands, really, but it's well, way, it, way, way north of Watford. Yeah, we considered ourselves northern. Um, and uh, and I, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm sure the listeners will hear this every now and again that I zone in and out when I'm talking to someone who uses a flat A, who says castle instead of castle, it will come back um, just without me, unless I pay attention to it. Um, because I changed my accent, weirdly, uh, when I was a teenager, because I just didn't like, I literally didn't like the sound of my own voice. And you mentioned the young ones. It wasn't a, a class thing or a shame thing, particularly, but I, I, there were two things. I had it in my head that people who sound, uh, who speak with a southern English accent, uh, that people pay attention when they speak or they get they have this unearned authority that sort of helps in life mm. somehow. That was my suspicion, and I think uh, horribly I was right. And secondly, um, we mentioned the young ones, and actually I just thought swearing is so much more fun. It just sounded so much more fun with that accent. Like, Vivian, you bastard! It <laughs> uh, just sounded so much funnier than Vivian, you bastard! Because to my ear, uh, growing up with my dad... That was a uh, that sound was just fifteen times more aggressive and more frightening. So um, a southern accent was kind of my friend in a way. It, it kind of felt like this friendly kind of playground of a of a way of talking that no one can hurt you if you if you have these long a's and these you know the other the other sort of saying but instead of but. But anyway, I've only got myself to blame if people think I, I'm confusing accent with class. But I mean they are bound up with each other. The the house that I grew up in was a bungalow and we read the daily mirror and we drove secondhand cars everyone had a job no one had a career no one had been to university not many books in the house uh lots of raised voices about money um it was that it was a pretty standard working or maybe at a push uh, lower middle class uh environment and we watched blind date and you know it was yeah we would you know, we were our idea of normal. We were normal about as normal as it got. I thought that was completely normal. I thought everyone was like that. Um, so, so changing my accent and also obviously the fact that I went to a grad, not, it won't be obvious to you unless you know, but it's obvious to me. The fact that I went to a grammar school meant that I was suddenly not surrounded exactly, but there were one or two people there who also spoke with this strange accent and they seemed to go on holiday to Tuscany instead of the Costa Brava. And they seemed to have a piano in the house and they, uh, and they didn't watch telly very often. And they were talking in a completely different way in a, about completely different subjects. I thought, who are these mysterious creatures? <laughs> and, and it was my sort of, uh, and I didn't dis, I didn't instantly despise them or, or, or fear them. Uh, there's something weird in my character that made me want to be a bit more like that. And I sort of turned into a, something close to that. And by the time I was applying to university, you know, eventually it was, a, I made a pig's ear of it and I, I spent a long time trying to do it. But eventually I got into Cambridge. Mm. And I, at that point, that, that kind of <laughs> seals the deal, doesn't it? On yeah, me going around claiming to be a working class person. But that was the environment uh, that I grew up in. But I was thinking because I, I didn't know when this this sort of change happened, and I, I was going to wrongly presume that it happened uh, around Cambridge time. It was. I think my accent was my accent was halfway up the A one, uh, halfway down the A one. I should say by the time I was sixteen, I'd yeah. say, and and that it was a sort of. Change. I became southern in my heart, <laughs> <laughs> or, or middle class in my heart. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty gradual. It was pretty gradual. I think, uh, but when I when I got there, I think the assumption was yes, my parents were graduates. Um, right, and and I was from the home counties, and that was uh, absolutely bizarre. Uh, in the same way, I was kind of delighted because I was interested in, as as many people are, whether it's whether it's a class based thing or, or whatever it is, are interested in reinvention or interested in presenting a different side to themselves or a new version of themselves. Do you think um, that's what you were striving for? Was for reinvention? I think I think that's partly it. That was going on. I mean, my mother had died when I was seventeen, um, halfway through my A level, so I stayed around. I had to. I didn't just retake in November. Well, I would have really screwed that up. Um, I went back to school for a year, uh, so I, I was. I hung around 
Lincolnshire for much longer than I really wanted. And I think mm. it was uh, with, you know, all the best will in the world to all the people who are there. And that is my home and always will be. But it was a rejection of this place where this unbelievably unpleasant thing had happened. And I kind of felt because she died and she was really the only member of my family who I really got on with. I've got two older brothers who I love and I've got, and late, later I had a younger sister. But still, mum was the person I thought understood me uh, it, to put it in a slightly pompous and teenage way. And it, it just felt like, you know, I felt like Luke Skywalker going, you know, looking at <laughs> looking at the, you know, his uh, uh, aunt, uh, aunt and uncle uh, on fire going, there's nothing here for me now. Um, and I sort of, it was, it, it came to represent Tatooine, this kind of thing that I wanted to get away from. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it, it was a gradual, it was a gradual process. But, um, but by the time I was at Cambridge, I, I, I felt, I'll be honest with you, more at home there really quite suddenly than I had been at home for a long time. Isn't it interesting when you, you move somewhere that, that's all new to you and then immediately it feels like home and you find, you know, we're all, we always strive to try and, you know, find our tribe and find our people and it's yeah. something that, that, that comes up again and again in these conversations. It did and it, and it came with an accompanying sense of guilt and one that will always be there, um, slightly. In, 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 in what way, Robert? Nagging away, just the feeling that you've let, not that you've let the team down, because the team, the team were consistently very proud of me. Uh, you know, my what was left of my family, my dad and my brothers, very proud that I'd, uh, I'd been the first person in my family to go to university, and I made it that one. And they couldn't quite go over how cool that was, and frankly, neither have I. Um, but, it, but guilt in the sense that, it just there's something a bit rum about it, isn't it? Isn't there that the, you come from one sort of tribe and you and you jump ship or you or you cross over into some other kind of world and you you sort of feel, um, I mean, traitor would be an incredibly strong word for it, but but certainly that you've you've done something a bit weird. Um, yeah, and- I understand where you're coming from totally. I mean, you know, when I was growing up in Blackpool, there wasn't really that many people from Blackpool who I saw that were on the television. Yeah. And, you know, you know, whenever I get stopped, when I go back to Blackpool now, I'm, you know, I've been off the telly, but it doesn't really, I suppose I have to look at it from other people's point of view when you feel that you've, they feel that, oh, he's made something of himself. And there, yeah. there is a, I suppose there is a bit of guilt there. Yeah. I agree with you. Robert, were you born in Boston? That's right. Yeah. I went to Boston I was filming in Boston last year and I have to say coming from Blackpool I I thought it was one of the most terrifying places I've ever been (laughs) I mean I haven't been for years I won't I won't pretend to have any uh, insights into uh, Boston but uh, yeah that was where I was um I was born in the hospital there and uh it was a local it was the local uh, the biggest town that wasn't Lincoln and it was mm. the place uh, you, you went sh- clothes shopping there. I sort of, uh, I'm a terrible navigator, but even I could sort of find my way there. And um, uh, yeah, you would go out. You Actually, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't go out there because it was too rough. Yeah, there seems to be, there seems to be a lot of pubs there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, God knows what it's like now, but it, it was it had a reputation even even then. Really, I mean, it's uh, yeah, there's it's a deprived area. I mean, it's some nice bits, nice roads, the same same as anywhere. Uh, you know, some places are doing better than others, but um, it was uh, it had a reputation for yeah, you had to take you had to take care if you were going, if you were going out in Boston. Yeah, I think it's still got it. One of the first person um, to walk past me um, had uh, the most. Delicious black eye and blooded soccer oh, that I've ever seen just walking around <laughs> at midday. Yeah, um, yeah it was a, a very odd place. It had a, a quite an eerie air. Mm. So, can we talk about growing up at school? Robert? Yeah. Were you someone that would throw themselves into subjects? It's a sort of tale of two halves, really. Um, I was incredibly shy and quiet uh, all the way through primary school. Uh, mm. As far as far as you know, my sort of presence at that school was concerned. I mean, I had a, a small group of friends, and I was I was always funny, and I would do impressions of the teachers, and I would make up the amusing, change lyrics to pop songs uh, in the Alab um, Baron Knights. If you're old enough to remember um, them, but. Um, uh, after that, uh, but I, I was really sort of keeping myself to myself and, and not really 
um, not really a stellar uh, student either. I kind of scraped into grammar school. In fact, the, the headmaster of my primary school had a conversation with my mother saying he looked at the grade, uh, the absolutely ridiculous 11 plus, you know, outdated version of an IQ test that was discredited 60 years ago anyway. Yeah. Um, I got, I was, I got a borderline mark in that. And she, he said to her, look, he's going to struggle at the grammar school or he's going to do quite well at the secondary modern. What do you want to do? Um, she used to work for, I, don't, I doubt he did this all the time. She used to be his secretary at a previous school. For, right. So they were friends. And she said, I'll ask Robert. And so she asked me. And for some reason, I said, I'd rather struggle at a grammar school. And that made, I mean, just all the difference in the world. My brothers went to the secondary modern. They left school at 16. So um, there I was. And I wasn't particularly, I didn't do particularly well until sort of my third year. I don't know what that is in new money, but the third year at senior school, um, year, I don't know, 13 or something. Mm. And no, that's not right. Year uh, seven, eight, nine. Um, but when I was 14, 15, and suddenly... Um, things started to, it's like the year before I started GCSEs and things started to go better. And suddenly I was, you know, they still had these very competitive exams where they'd take an average of all of your exam scores uh, in all your subjects and give you a, a grading in within the form. Uh, and I'd been used to being sort of 17th out of 24 or, you know, 15th out of 30. And suddenly I was always in the top three. Why, uh, why, why the change, do you think? Was it something I, that you were conscious of? There was there was a change in form teacher. Um, right. There was Mrs. Slater became my form teacher, and I just relaxed for some reason. There was something about her that I kind of uh, that she understood, and we got along. and And I think um, there was just a growing confidence, and I think I I made some friends, and I felt that I had a a peer group, and a, 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 I was part of a gang. Yeah, uh, and that really helped. Um, and it just felt like this, the, the work just became more interesting somehow. It was less this shitty grind. You know, in English, say, it's the difference between box analysis, which is a fucking terrible way of teaching grammar, and reading a really good book. Um, it, was, um, it was just more fun, suddenly. And, um, and, it, and it carried on like that, and it got, it got better and better up to A-level, where... I really enjoyed it, and then I started, and then when I started my degree, that's when I felt that I'd really done enough of this so-called work, uh, and it was it was time to relax. But I mean, my school career, you know, went in the right trajectory. I think I peaked at the right time, but I didn't. It didn't really start till you know thirteen, fourteen. But that's all it takes, isn't it? All it takes is you know not to put sole credit on a teacher, but if a teacher, oh my god, yes, I mean the, know, the difference that a good teacher makes is just extraordinary. It is now. I mean, I tell my son that now, and he's only sort of eight and a half, and he yeah. kind of shrugs it off, especially with the homeschool. And it was funny the other day. I was, he was doing um, a Microsoft Teams thing on the computer with all his schoolmates and the teacher, yeah. and uh, and I was in the bedroom, sort of folding some clothes, and I could hear him, and I I heard like a different boy, and I went, "Oh, that's <laughs> that's what you're like in class." Yeah. Stop being a little shit. (laughs) Try and be nice, you know. Is is that how you talk to people? Is that what what you're like? I I actually, the word, the sentence came out of my mouth. Is that how you are at school? You know, I just thought, God, like my dad, all of a sudden. Yeah. That's what, you know, that's what a couple of weeks of homeschooling brings out in me. Yeah, homeschooling is such a weird one. It's cured me of any, you know, lingering idea that uh, I had any vocation whatsoever to be a teacher. I mean, I'm sort of going around being this slightly hopeless uh, primary school supply teacher. It's mainly IT support. I mean, it's kind of, you know, hovering over an eight-year-old's shoulder and going, do you unmute it? Mute it? Unmute it. I think you mute it. Are you muted? I mean, she knows, they know way more than that. My, my daughters are eight and ten. And it's it's weird, isn't it? Because I, I'm not sure how much value there is in making my eight-year-old adept at Zoom uh, and you know, yeah. I kind of wish she was going on a nature trail, but um, you know that that kind of thing isn't isn't available. And um, well, anyway, I mean they're you know they're London girls. I'm almost ashamed of how little they miss the outdoors. I mean uh, they're perfectly happy <laughs> inside. <laughs> well, speaking of vocation, were you aware of what you wanted to do after after Cambridge? Was there a goal? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it happened freakishly early. Um, I mean, that that sort of ties in with the whole sort of um, me uh, slightly changing um, conversation. When I was 13, uh, I decided I wanted to be a comedy writer and performer, uh, which is freakish. I mean, it's that slightly weirdly unattractive back of an envelope territory. Mm. But um, there was a school play. There was a... They, uh, Queen Elizabeth Grammar School, Horncastle, do this weird thing, or, I, or certainly did then, called the I Steadford, where the three forms that make up the second year compete in uh, gymnastics and poetry and drama and uh, painting and a few other things uh, and have this weird competition. And as part of it, everyone had to do a a form play. And my friend Paul Carver had written this thing called Class Reunion, which is about how we all meet up in the year 2000 and what we're doing. And And he'd written himself the main part and he was a millionaire. Uh, and everyone else was a dickwad. Um, and Paul, uh, fortuitously, very luckily, with lasting consequences for me, got appendicitis the, the night before. It was this evening thing where parents were invited to watch this bizarre spectacle. Uh, and so I stepped in, got the main part. The teacher, again, Heather Slater, said, Robert, why don't you do it? Um, and I, until then, I had hardly been in school plays at all i mean i like i say i i've been i've been the sort of clown with my friends mm. but i hadn't really gone in front of a bunch of strangers and tried to do the same thing with them and with a pre-learnt bunch of lines and the two are very very different i mean it's the, completely it's the, different it's, yeah it's I, the um you know the 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 guy down the pub who always holds court and he's making all his friends laugh you know as opposed yeah. to like a professional stand-up comedian yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, in that instance, usually the, the difference is that the, the stand-up can do it when he's got a cold, uh, and the stand-up can do it when he doesn't feel like it. Uh, yeah. is, the, is the main difference. But but it was um, it was absolutely bizarre, and, and suddenly I was there, and I was sort of I had this feeling that I if I turned this if I gave this little inflection at the end of this line, or if I did something with my face at the end of this line, or if I kept very still during this line. Th- this was going to get the the reaction that I wanted, and uh, and I did, mm. and um, it was an extraordinarily powerful feeling, and I didn't want that. I wanted more of that. I wanted a lot more of that. Yeah. And I remember going home, and it was um, not not a classic sitcom by any stretch of the imagination. It was a BBC sitcom called Home Sweet Home, starring William Gaunt and a very young Martin Clunes. And I watched that, and uh, I thought, are they doing anything that I? didn't just do that I, because they're making it look very easy is it easy because it's easy or is it easy because they're very good at it and i remember leaning forward and uh in this weird kind of 13 year old decides his future kind of way <laughs> thinking okay i i think i'm gonna do that that's what i want to do um so that was that was firmly established and then after that i was writing sketches and putting on sort of end of term reviews really sketch shows on the school stage and you'd you charge people 10p and it would go to charity and you know the ostensible reason why this was allowed was it was raising money for charity and in, uh, and uh, uh, and encouraged team team spiritedness among the form among all my friends who I got to do the rubbish parts the straight parts um whereas of course it was mainly so that I could uh, show off and and um and prance around on the stage so I you know I did three or four of those over the rest of the my years uh, um at school, and so by the time I'd, by the time I got to Cambridge, and I was hell bent on Cambridge because of the Cambridge Footlights, which is yeah, this student review group. Um, I'd got some of the worst sketches out of my system already, and I was, and I was reasonably, I was, again because I'd gone back to school for a year, and I was old for my year. I was already twenty years old, and I had a certain amount of confidence and and, and weirdly experience, and so that all kind of helped. But I went there with the express intention of meeting someone who wanted a, a job in comedy. I thought I wanted to meet someone like David Mitchell. Fortunately, the actual David Mitchell was there, which was a boon. <laughs> Prior to Cambridge, Robert, were you heavily influenced by what you were consuming? Whether mm. you were, you know, listening to comedy, old comedy LPs or yeah. fringe stuff or television? Yeah, I had a um, Not the Nine O'Clock News cassette tape. Um, right. I, I wasn't quite old enough to catch it the first time around, but I, I saw the old repeat and then I got, bought it on tape. And there was also, I had a um, Smith, and jo- Smith and Jones scratch, uh, LP called Scratch and Sniff, which was some of the ruder material. That was great. And then on, on the telly, I was watching 
the Young Ones and uh, Blackadder, of course, Fry and Laurie, um, and all of all of that generation uh, comic strip, of course, French and Saunders. Um, I, I don't know. I wouldn't like to say how much they influenced me, but that that was definitely. I, I I knew what I liked, and I liked that a lot. And then there were the mainstream guys who uh, you wouldn't put in that uh, in that gen- as part of that generation, but who I adored. People like um, Billy Connolly and Victoria Wood uh, and Les Dawson. Even I loved watching. Um, so the and Tommy Cooper. I mean, you know, you know all the the real greats of, of traditional mainstream yeah. comedy, um, apart from, you know, the, the real assholes who, who genuinely <laughs> did tell really, really unpleasant jokes. Uh, uh, we know who we're talking about there, yeah. but, um, but most, you know, I, I would watch anything that was, that was meant to be funny. And, uh, and there was always something to enjoy about it. I suppose um, also when you're younger, you're, if you, you've got it in you, that that's something that you, you would love to pursue and you're watching these people and you're going, well, 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 they're doing it for a career. So, yeah. So sure, it, it, you know this could be viable. This could well, happen. It, it remains this incredibly unlikely thing. But then, you know, it, it, by the time I was at university, I'd already done a very unlikely thing. So it's not like my dad and my brothers were going, "Are you out of your mind? This is an incredibly difficult profession to break into and remains very precarious for the rest of your life, unless you're stupendously lucky." Um, they already thought I was I, I had magic <laughs> coming out of my arse <laughs> I'd made this Cambridge thing happen so they went alright fair enough Rob's going to do that now alright okay if he says so um, so it was uh, and they, they would come and see shows and they could see that I had something going on um, so it, it didn't seem like such a such a mad idea I mean looking back it was incredibly mad I mean it was <laughs> You know the the chances of doing well in this job are incredibly slender, and at every point there was nothing inevitable about me and David. Well, there was nothing inevitable about me and David uh, working together for a start, but there was nothing inevitable about you know the the path that we took for a long time, for years. It felt like okay, right, we've now sort of established ourselves within the business. We might subsist as writers. We were yeah. writing for other people. We were writing for the Jack Doherty show and we were writing sketches for Armstrong Miller when they were still at Channel 4 uh, and the links for this and that. And we'd done a few sort of things where we got to be on camera. Um, there was a late night access show called Comedy Nation where you literally bring your own costume. Uh, and we'd done a bit of that. I mean, none of this paid very well. Um, and we were sort of, and there were at least two years where, uh, in my case, three years where I just wasn't doing anything apart from working at the, I was working, I had a series of part-time jobs. Um, uh, so it just seemed like the, the idea that one day you're going to get paid and well paid for writing or acting, never mind both. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was this just miraculous pipe dream, but one which for some reason out of, sheer conceit or the confidence that various things including Cambridge had given us David and I actually had faith that this was going to happen and we also we had each other which was a big deal as well I think it's so hard on your own we were kind of we could at least say okay it's still a load of old bollocks but at least you know this year we've got a slightly better slot in Edinburgh than we did this time last year you know, last year we were at uh, 20 past 11 in the morning in Pleasant's Attic. This this year we're 2 o'clock in the afternoon, Pleasant's upstairs. So that's, a that you know, you can get 20 more seats in there, not, which is not necessarily 20 more people, but 20 <laughs> more seats. Um, so we there was always this sense of very, very gradual um, progress until we got Peep Show, um, in, which we filmed the first series of that in 2002, and then all bets were off, and then everything changed. But until then, it, it was this very gradual. Ninety-five to to the early part of this century was um, this sort of very was was tough, basically. But you'd <laughs> but expect it to be, and it, it kind of um, it, it is tough. But were you were you happy during those times? Because it's not you know people um, very rarely go into the arts with the the sole goal of making lots of money, and if they do, mm. then I don't think that's um, the, the the correct decision to be no. honest, because as we as we've discussed, you know, it, it is such a precarious career. Yeah, yeah. No, you've got to love it, and you've got to be. It's got to be something that you would do. I mean, this is the secret. It's something that you would do for free if you had to. I mean, mm. it's something you know that, that you would carry on. You you'd be doing it anyway. I'd be writing books now anyway, even if nobody gave me a, a, a contract, and I, I'd be 
Uh, and we obviously, all actors did it for the love of it to start with. I mean, all actors were Amdram performers, right? I mean, yeah. everyone did it. For, nobody, you know, starts and they get paid. Um, so, you know, whether you're doing it at school or with a drama club or, or university or whatever, um, and drama school, of course. Uh, so, uh, no, you've got to, you've got to love it. Um, you've got to want it. Uh, and you've got to enjoy it. But uh, on the other hand, did I enjoy those years? Well, I enjoyed the time in t- in terms of, you know, I was young, I had a lovely girlfriend, I was living with a bunch of friends. Uh, we were skint, and that was difficult. And, you know, I was kind of afraid every time the phone rang or something came through the letterbox that it was going to be the phone, or it was going to be the bank manager or the DSS or the bank manager, that ages me, that I really did have a bank manager, that it was going to be the bank or the DSS or or um, uh, or council tax or the landlord or yeah. God knows what. And that was all, and I was living on beans on toast or super noodles and it was, uh, that was rubbish uh, and feeling very kind of, you know, and I didn't have my, you know, my mum was long gone, my dad didn't have any money. There was no one to fall back on. Uh, so that was unpleasant, but at the same time, you know, you're young and you don't mind drinking, uh, wine that costs 98p a bottle and, uh, you don't really look after your body very well. You don't need to cause you're 23 and you're yeah. kind of a super being anyway. Um, so there was, so it was a kind of mixed, it was kind of mixed thing. I mean, I was just, it was precarious, uh, materially and, uh, there was this ongoing panic that I felt that, it might just not work uh, and that would be bad in terms of money and also bad in terms of it would be a shame it would be like i've got this thing and i bet i bet they're gonna like it if i if i get a chance to show them if i get a bite at the cherry i bet people will really like it uh but there was this kind of dread that it just wasn't it wasn't gonna happen people were never gonna know just how fucking marvellous I was. <laughs> it was the feeling. When you were writing by yourself and you were writing those sketches, like prior to Cambridge, and, mm. you know, you, you said to yourself you, the goal was to find a writing partner. And then when you, you met David, did you find that you had to adapt personally the, the way you worked as a solo writer? It was, um, uh, that, that sort of change had taken place already before I met David. So uh, I'm a year ahead of David. So um, Footlights has this way of, the way they go about writing a, a sketch show, or certainly then, mm. um, was you just have a bunch of, you have the cast who should be all writers as well. That's the idea. Uh, and then a bunch of extra writers who are not in the cast. And so you've got about 10, 12 people and you go away in pairs and you write a sketch for an hour and you come back and you read it out in front of everyone, uh, which is um, ruthless, but it's very it's a very efficient way of generating a lot of material very quickly. Yeah. A lot of it will be rubbish. There'll be, a, I mean, God knows, there'll be a lot of, should we say politely, redundancy. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you will, at the end of that process, have enough to, to get enough good sketches to, to make a show. So I was quite used to... So that, that was the change then. In my, in my sort of first year, I sort of got used to that writing with other people and the sort of give and take that comes with that. And sometimes you're with a, you've got a strong partner and sometimes you haven't. And sometimes you're kind of in the driving seat and sometimes you're not. And it's kind of gauging, you know, what's going to happen and who's got an idea and who's, whose idea it is. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll usually, um, and how strong the idea is in the first place, all of that. So when I came to do it with David, that wasn't such a, such a new experience. Um, but with David, it felt, uh, immediately, uh, like we understood each other. Uh, all the references were sort of lined up together. We all kind of, we just, you know, it's a cliche, but we really did click and there was some chemistry there. And I'd seen him, um, previous to that, uh, previous to us writing for the first Footlight show that we worked on, that we both worked on. I'd seen him in a show that he made with his mates, uh, and I, I was sitting in the audience watching him, uh, and I thought, ooh, I conceitedly, he reminded me of me, because he just looked completely at home there. There was this, there was this kind of mixture of alertness and relaxation, and I couldn't take my eyes off him. I was watching him when he didn't have any funny lines, when he didn't have much to do. Hmm. He was still watching David Mitchell, and I thought, what are we going to do about this? Um, <laughs> it was like it was like Darth Vader and the Emperor having that conversation. You know, there is there has been a disturbance in the family. We have a new enemy. <sighs> if he could be turned, he will be a powerful ally. 
Um, so I decided uh, to, uh, to to make him a powerful ally. So I asked him if he wanted to do a show with me um, at the end of his first year, and we do a, we did a two man show, uh, and we that's where we started. It was called Innocent Millions Dead or Dying brackets a wry look at the post apocalyptic age with songs, um, and it wasn't very good, but it had its moments, and we didn't really learn the script properly, uh, which was a terrible lesson because we kind of got through it. And it went down really well, yeah. And we just sort of enjoyed working together, and we we find we find the same things funny, which is the absolute bare minimum you want from any double act. And there was obviously an immediate balance between you. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt uh, even though I was a, I was older, but that and and frankly very grand because I was on the Footlights Committee, and he was just some shit muncher first year. So he was he was being asked out on a big comedy date. Obviously, those differences evaporate. Uh, and in, in this case, very quickly, as soon as he worked out that I couldn't type, uh, all, of, all of my perceived seniority fell away immediately there. And um, so, yes, but we were well matched. And uh, and uh, I was the the slightly more, I mean, you know, there are people who are going to find this hilarious. But, but compared to David, I was the slightly uh, street cred one because I had, I had an earring and slightly long hair. And I was from the north <laughs> compared to compared to David, who's from a suburb of Oxford. Uh, and you know how he sounds. Uh, so it was, yeah, I was like, I was like his bit of rough, <laughs> um, which I know uh, is very silly to think of now. But that's kind of how it, I mean, that, that kind of dynamic, to be fair, kind of continued really. Sam and Jesse, who write Peep Show, Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, must have perceived something like that in the in the partnership because they wrote Peep Show for us uh, yeah. and Mark for him and Jeremy for me. And uh, I don't think that's an accident. If they'd written it the other way around, that would have been definitely weird. I suppose also it's a, it's a, you know, it's a writer's gift and it's incredible for a writer to put all the strength of what they're putting down into the real people instead of the, you know, it's much easier for them, surely. To, to, to write for the... If they're when saying, they, well, I'm... I'm writing for David Mitchell, I'm yeah, writing for this yeah. character, I'm writing for Robert Webb, so we can yeah. just put all that in instead of creating these new characters. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's a mixture of, um, you'd have to ask them really, but it, of, of the fact that you know, they, they sort of knew our, knew what they wanted to what they enjoyed hearing us do as performers and they could hear our voices uh, which mm. I think makes a massive difference yeah uh, and I in fact I know that um you know on the I've heard people talk about the first series compared to the second series of a sitcom that, that in the second series because you know the actors um you you improve the dialogue the dialogue becomes more naturally and, and and it flows more naturally into their mouths if you like um and that's a two-way street as well because the, the the actor will be doing that as well you see some lines and the more you get to know the character uh the more uh you can the more natural you can make that line sound i mean you know god knows that's that's your only job stand in the right place and and, and make what the the carefully learnt lines sound as if you, it's just popped into your head. I mean, that anyone says that acting is more complicated than that is <laughs> is making a meal of it, if you ask me. But um, <laughs> but it's it gets easier as the as that relationship strengthens between the writers and the actors. And it's such a shame now, sometimes certainly on well on British and American television that certain comedies aren't left to 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 bed in and and mm. find their audience and find those voices. It's like well. You know, these things take a lot of time. Yeah, they do. I mean, even when I think I got, I get the feeling that that was sort of in decline a bit by by the time David and I sort of turned up. But I mean, still. Um, so, for example, we did four series of Damage and Web Look, and that slot was taken up by um, lovely Ingrid and Lorna um, Watson mm. and Oliver, uh, and they did a series of their sketch show, and it didn't go brilliantly, but they still got a second series, and that was that was kind of what the BBC. I'm making that sound like a charity case. There were lots of nice things to admire in that show. Obviously, I have a slightly, <laughs> I don't have the world's most <laughs> sunny disposition towards that particular show because that <laughs> replaced mine. But um, but uh, I, I love Ingrid and Lorna. They're very nice people. But um, uh, but still, you would get you know you would always get two bites of a cherry. I'm not sure if that's true anymore, and, I, and I'm not sure if they would take a risk on on the likes of me. David or or, uh, or Ingrid and Lorna uh, in the same way. I mean, I mean, a whole series on a terrestrial channel uh, when nobody really knows quite who you are. That um, I'm not sure if that happens anymore. But um, 
what do I know? I'm talking like an old fart now. I'm not really... I, I don't know the world as well as I used to. No, but do you think the that the sketch show format... I mean, obviously that it's yeah. changed, but do you think it's still this? It's still alive somewhere because obviously, you know, with something like um, your show and you know going back the fast show and yeah, there was a there was a real there was a fashion for it at one time, and now it doesn't seem to be happening much much anymore. When they work, they're brilliant. Um, yeah. But but I mean, it, it, it's it's always been the case that no one wants to make them um, because they're uh, they're really expensive. And you can't get um, the loyalty of an audience that you get with a sitcom unless you d- you have loads of returning characters. And, of course, that's the route that uh, k- the likes of Catherine Tate and Little Britain uh, especially went down. It was all returning characters. And they, they, weren't, they just weren't, you know, without sounding disrespectful, they weren't ideas-led um, sketches. They weren't, there wasn't a premise to behind the sketch. It was just, let's see some more of uh, Vicky Pollard doing her thing. And yeah. very, very enjoyable it was too. But it was a different kind of show. Whereas traditionally, sketch shows were, here's a bunch of funny ideas, let's get some people to play these characters. And, and you know, and it's three minutes long and it has a beginning and a middle and an end. And it's a, it's a sketch show. Um, I, I'm not sure if we're ever going to, well, you know, you know, these things are cyclical and maybe it'll come into fashion one day i mean it's so ripe for it's so perfect for youtube because it's this you know it's this three minute thing that you can just dip in and out of and you get yeah. sucked down to it i mean it, I, it's happened to me even i've ended up watching loads of mitchell and webb sketches um <laughs> when i should be doing something else because you know the next it sort of it reels you in um so i'd love to see more sketch shows i, I think it's a i think it's a really fun um format you know and if you don't particularly like this one then it's okay because there'll be another one along in a minute well that's ex- um, i was just about to say that that's exactly the format going i'm not really like that well it's all right don't worry the next someone else is coming soon it's yeah quick, and then quick, you quick. get you'll get a tv critic who thinks they're the first person to say i found i found the show something of a hit and miss experience and <laughs> no shit in fact, yeah. david and i got so frustrated with this we actually wrote a sketch uh, a sort of behind-the-scenes sketch where we were talking about which uh, sketches were going to be hits and which ones were going to be misses uh, in, in this episode. I think it ought to go hit, hit, miss, <laughs> miss, hit, miss, miss. And we were, like, arguing about it, and about the hits and the misses. Um, so, yeah, it, it was always like that. And some people find it frustrating, and, and but, you know, I, uh, maybe it's always been a sort of minority taste, and that's why it's they're on their way out but i mean i think you i think you still see it it's the natural medium for people who are not stand-ups but who are funny Mm. to make stuff and you see that the good news is anyone can do it and you can put it on the internet the bad news is anyone can do it and you can put it on the (laughs) internet and so it's very difficult to get noticed i'd have thought so you know the way that david and i came at it which was a traditional kind of uh we'll try and write sketches for weekending although that didn't weekending was a topical uh sketch show where on the radio four mm. where um uh anyone could send in sketches and if you had enough funny ones you become you became a commissioned writer and you were given a, a, a weekly wage we never got that far uh we were we hated doing weekending and we were rubbish at it uh, but we have, we sort of had this relationship with the BBC through Comedy Nation, and then a bad sketch show called Bruiser uh, that had um, people who've never been seen of again, like Olivia Coleman and Martin Freeman. Yeah, um, what happened to those guys? Exactly. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it, it sort of happened like that. I don't know how you would how you would get into it these days. I mean, there are various access things, and I guess I guess the fact that you can make a sketch show on your phone now must help. Um, but blimey, I'm glad. Um, I'm glad it's not me having to do that now. <laughs> but of course, writing a sketch uh, is one thing. Uh, but writing a novel mm. is something completely different. Was there? Do you think there was always a novel in you? Yeah, I, I always wanted to do it, um, but I knew that it was going to be something for the something for later, and I didn't know when that later was going to be. Um, but I, I was writing stories before I was writing sketches. I mean, I was, I was coming up with stories when I was a kid. Right. Um, I had this imaginary gang of uh, friends called the Guy Bys, and the Guy Bys had various adventures. Um, and not as my wife insists, the bi guys. And so it's just you and a bunch of bi guys. Is that right? Um, uh, no. Uh, and um, so I, I always, I always enjoyed writing stories, and I was writing stories on spec and just for my own satisfaction. Really, I, I wasn't trying to sell anything um, for years and years. And then um, 
the idea for Come Again, which is the, my first novel, uh, sort of came about in sort of 2012. I remember I was writing, I was filming a series of, filming a scene from Peep Show, sitting in Jeremy's car while the crew were re-rigging the lights. And um, the idea just sort of came to me. Shall I tell you t- very briefly about the idea? Yeah, please do. So we've got our heroine, Kate, uh, Kate Marston. She's about my age, a bit younger, 45, and she's a widow. She's just lost her husband, uh, Luke. Uh, Kate and Luke got together a long time ago when they were kids, when they met at the University of York in Freshers' Week. Um, and uh, they've been together ever since. But Luke recently died and Kate is in trouble. She's in terrible grief and she's not getting better. One day she wakes up. She's 18 years old. It's 1992. She's in her college room. This was the... And she remembers everything. In her head, she's still 45. This was the week. In fact, this was the night that she met Luke for the first time. Uh, She knows how he died. She knows he's already ill. She thinks she's there to warn him. She's going to try and do everything exactly the same. Hence, comedy. Because you can't do everything exactly the same. (laughs) So, uh, So that's the kind of premise. That's the kind of situation. And, of course, she finds that... You know, the 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 Luke the nineteen ninety two Luke is not the middle aged man that she lost. He's not the the fully rounded husband that she lost. He's the he's still the annoying nineteen uh, year old English student that she first met. I mean, she kind of went out with him despite his personality to start with. It was the original um, one night stand that got out of hand. Um, and I think that's I think that's the way with lots of very very long relationships that actually you know you do the falling in love bit afterwards, mm. um, which they did. Uh, so she's got to convince him that he's got a, he's got this brain tumor, um, and that conversation happens in the middle of the book, and it does not go well. But there's but there's also you know her other lifelong friends, none of whom of course know who she is. I mean, it's kind of a, a cure to that daydream of what would, what would you do if you went back in time to change things in that of course it would be you only think about it five seconds you realize how incredibly lonely it would be Mm. if you knew all this stuff that other people don't know and you knew stuff about your friends futures and in particular in freshers week where you're surrounded by your friends and they don't know who you are your husband doesn't know who you are um so she has to contend with all that but mainly i don't i hope i haven't made it sound like too heavy it's a it's a comedy and the whole thing is is uh is deliberately written to be funny well, I haven't, I'll be honest, I haven't finished it, but I am really, really enjoying it. Oh, good. Thank you. I must admit, when we started this lockdown, I thought, right, I, I had a, I've got to my bookshelf and I picked out all the books that I've been meaning to finish or read. Yeah. I had, I had a live section of books. Yeah, we all did that. And <laughs> I don't know about you, but I couldn't get past the first no. two pages. I, I, no. I, I couldn't concentrate for the no, life. I, I couldn't. I couldn't even watch a film. I couldn't I'm do still, anything. I'm still finding it really. I mean, it's not not as bad as it was in the first few weeks, but I'm still finding it difficult to settle. Um, mm. With, I mean, I read. Um, uh, there's a lovely uh, book called uh, "Wishful Drinking" by Carrie Fisher. It's Carrie Fisher's very brief memoir, and it's mm. based on a stage show, and it's only about sixty pages long. And that's the that's the level of <laughs> yeah. of weighty reading that I was dealing with in the, in those first few weeks, and all that bullshit about oh, you know, this is a great time to learn Mandarin or read Ulysses. I mean, come off it. And that whole kind of, if not now, when? Well, I'll tell you when. When, you know, everyone isn't knackered and strung out because there's a deadly virus outside the front door. Um, so yeah, we should all give ourselves a break there. We're not going to, we're not going to be, you know, if you can, I can barely get through my emails without (laughs) succumbing to the temptation to just go back to bed, but I can't do that because I'm being a rubbish supply teacher. Um, can we, when we're talking about concentration, can we talk about concentration as a writer? mm. Um, are you one of these that is very well structured or do you take yourself off to the office or to a cafe or... No, not really. I mean, uh, the book, both books, because I wrote a, a memoir first called mm. How Not To Be A Boy, and then the, this is my second book, but first novel, and both books were written in a really kind of chaotic and uh, disorganised manner. What can I tell you? It's just, I, you know, don't listen to me for writing tips from <laughs> that point of view. I mean, what can I... I mean, those Sunday supplements where, 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 that have that, that spot going, um, my writing day, I mean, they just crack me off. <laughs> I mean, I just look at them in a mixture of awe and disbelief. You know, writers go, I rise at 5.30 and do an hour of yoga, and then I have a, you know, cranberry and wasp leg um, smoothie, and then I write for 3.2 hours, and then I do more yoga, and then I frantically masturbate until I have my important creative nap. 
you know, it's nothing like that. I'm marginally sharper in the morning than I am in the afternoon. I do understand that, you know, a lot of the job is just gluing your ass to the chair mm. um, or to put it more fragrantly as Philip Pullman did. Um, he said something like, uh, the muse won't necessarily uh, come to you, but you have to be in. You have to be in in case she does. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I try to be available um, in my... I do have a... I have a I'm coming to you directly live this moment from the room at the top of the house. We live in a, a nice uh, terrace house in North London. Very, very sort of small rooms, but very tall. Uh, and I'm in the, the room I laughingly call my study. Right. It's a converted uh, loft. Um, and this is where I will try to be. Although, frankly, um, for the first two books, uh, I was still smoking. So I was, as often as not, I'd be outside on a laptop because we've got a titchy little North London garden. Mm. And I'd be on a, um, on a uh, John Lewis table under a parasol, um, chain smoking and, and writing. But that, was, that, that happened sort of half the time, I guess. The rest of the time I was up here. Um, but, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any proper regimen. I mean, it's a disaster. It'll have to, it'll have to improve. And, and also, it'll be all written here rather than... I can't really concentrate if I go out. I can't, I can't go to cafes. I always feel bad about, am I drinking enough... Am I, am I buying enough coffee? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and also, um, I don't like coffee that much. I mean, I like a coffee every now and again, mm. but it's not like... Uh, yeah, so it's, uh, I, I, I'm happier at home. Uh, was where it, it's usually was quiet. It, was it an enjoyable process with the novel? Because I'm sure, and I don't know, but I'm sure with How Not To Be A Boy, that was probably quite a cathartic experience, Ryan. Yeah. Um, but was this, was, was Come Again an enjoyable process? It was, uh, compared to, compared to the, compared to the uh, How Not To Be A Boy, which had, of course, had the, you know, that, that big chapter in the middle dealing with my mum dying, and mm. that was a tough thing to write. Compared to that, I mean, not all the book is like that, but that, let's say that the book is, you know, that's, that was quite a, a memorable part of the writing process. Compared to that, the novel was harder technically. I mean, it's artistically harder, but less uh, heavy going emotionally. Yeah, Even though, you know, I've got some situations where, you know, Kate and, uh, you know, she's in terrible grief and she's making that move from living in the past to re-engaging with the present. And the, the way the story works is that she literally has to go and live in the past in order to do that, to rediscover what, what the present has to offer. It's that thing where you, you try and integrate the lost past with the, with the new present. And that's what mourning is. Um, so even though she's, she's going through that, um, there's, there's a lot of fun in that book. And there's a lot of, um, you know, it, uh, not to give too much away, but, you know, on the one hand, I thought, oh, I, I seem to be writing a quiet little book about love and memory and grief, but I can't help noticing, on the other hand, there's a car chase and a punch-up. Uh, and so, you know, it gets quite broad at times. And, and that's just me enjoying myself. And <laughs> really, I can only write the book that I would love to read. Mm. Uh, and we were talking about, you know, lockdown reading. If if I hadn't written it, I would love to read Come Again because it's, you know, it's a funny book. Doesn't take itself terribly seriously. It's full of ideas and it's massively uplifting and joyful, and that's where it's heading. So you know, anyway, I'm not saying that just to sell it. I am certainly saying it to sell it, but that's not the only reason I'm saying. Um, uh, Christ, what was the question? I've completely sidetracked myself. Do you think? Uh, I mean, do you think in some ways? I mean, it sounds to me that that you you, you did enjoy writing it a lot and yes do, yes do, i do did the answer is the answer is yes i yes. did <laughs> but do you think you now being an author is it overtaking other aspects of your career it sort of happened at the same time that i've become fussier as an actor i'm definitely uh i, I won't i can it's just this uh, I, i'd hesitate to say jadedness but a sort of a level of experience where you look at a job that's being offered to you and you think okay here are all the downsides and i don't like that and i don't like that and and, it, and it's kind of instead of thank you sir for offering me this wonderful opportunity yeah. it doesn't feel like that anymore it feels like why me why can't they get steven to do it get martin to do it get someone just get someone else to do it make make them do it so it uh, i've become very spoiled as an actor and but on the other hand that has sort of uh, happened at the same time that i my interest in writing these big projects these proper full-length books has uh really shot up so it's not like i'm going to stop acting i enjoy it too much and there are things like 
um, you know, back the second series of the of the sitcom I I do with David. Mm. Um, that I obviously I'm going to do. It's written for me and David. I love working with David. Love working that with that cast. This is grips by Simon Blackwell, who's brilliant. Uh, so what's not to like? So you know, I do things like that, obviously, and there will be there will be you know guest parts and and uh, and leading parts that that come along that that maybe I'll be delighted to do, and and uh, you know, just, this is not just me covering my ass in case my theatrical agent is listening and, and trying not to have a heart attack, um, but uh, but definitely writing as as uh, writing these big books has, has come to be a really really big part of my working life, if not the majority now at the moment but i mean you know life is long and 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 things change and um uh who knows how i'll feel this time next year uh robert webb thank you so much i've really enjoyed our conversation it's been lovely thanks so much for coming on the two shot podcast thank you craig that's been fantastic bless you and another episode is done enjoy it good right thank you so much for downloading and subscribing for all your messages and your emails that you send us keep sending them let's keep the conversation going week in week out because you know we love it go and tell some mates to join us let's let's grow this ever-expanding family of listeners the listening community and keep sending in your emails and let us know what you think of the episodes. You know, we're on all the socials. And if you do support us on Patreon during this time, or any time, but certainly around this time, me and Griff cannot thank you enough. You know how much it helps. And when all this is over, we will go and do big live shows and have a lovely party. Until then... You take care of yourself. I've been Craig Parkinson, and he's been producer Griff, and this has been the Two Shot Podcast. Stay safe. Stay sound. The Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. Cheers.